Welcome to Trending Health, where we provide you with valuable insights and perspectives on the evolving healthcare industry. Brought to you by Dynamic, Trending Health explores industry topics that are real, relevant, and worth discussing. I'm your host, Jen Burke. In today's episode, we're going to discuss a few recent newsworthy items we think healthcare leaders should be considering. I'm here with Dynamic's Ryan Hummel and Mindy McGrath to talk about what's trending now. Welcome back, Mindy and Ryan. Happy 2024. Happy 2024, Jen. So amazing that we're in 2024. Nice to see you both. I know we're all still dusting the cobwebs out of our brains after the holiday break. So I'm actually going to lead us through instead of asking you about some headlines you've been reading. I picked out a few and I want to chat about them. So the first one is about a recent acquisition by Bristol Myers Squibb. They announced that they are buying Raise Bio, which is a radio pharmaceuticals focused biotech. They paid $4.1 billion for the acquisition, which is just about three times what Raise Bio had secured in September with its IPO. Raise Bio's lead asset targets a protein that is overexpressed in certain types of neuroendocrine tumors and in small cell lung cancer. They're enrolling patients right now in their phase three trial. And as part of this deal, BMS also acquired their nearly complete manufacturing facility in Indianapolis, which Raise Bio expects to begin drug production in the first half of 2024. Yeah, Joe, when I saw this headline, the first thing that struck me about it is how much the topic and the area of radio pharma has really heated up. And I think it's really safe to say it's the buzz coming into 2024. We've seen a lot of activity around this between some of the transaction activity that Eli Lilly has had with point therapies and now BMS making this really significant purchase to step into this space. It's an area that they weren't in before, and it is one of the fastest growing M&A areas of 2023. You know, in fact, when we look at a global data report from last month, and we look at some of those venture capital deals around Radio Pharma, the growth has been tremendous. Some suggest it's upwards of 550% and that we should see about 408 million in transactions compared to 2017. I think what's interesting to me when I think about BMS, they have a lot of loss of patent exclusivity coming up. And so not only did they make this huge acquisition of Ray's Bio, but just days before that, right? They also purchased Karuna Therapeutics for about 14 billion. So they're making a dive back into a therapeutic area that they're familiar with, with schizophrenia, recalling that they had a blockbuster product in Abilify indicated for schizophrenia, and also making that investment in the Alzheimer's area. I think BMS is really doubling down in terms of where can they adopt innovative types of technologies, as well as going back to some of the therapeutic areas that they have had success in, in order to cover the loss of exclusivity of some current products that will be coming up in the next couple of years. Okay, speaking of innovative technologies, we have to talk about AI, of course. I think we're going to be talking about it a huge amount this year, probably even more than we did last year. But there was an article I saw towards the end of the year about a publication in Nature that I thought was really cool in terms of leveraging AI in the drug discovery space and how researchers were actually able to use AI to discover 
a class of antibiotics that is capable of killing MRSA, which of course we know a bacterial infection that is resistant to several antibiotics. And of course that has been just a growing concern over time, right? Not only for MRSA, but how are we going to address the rising resistance to antibiotics in general? So I thought this development to find a whole new class of drugs with AI was really exciting. Yeah, Jen, I think we're in this bridge where we're going from a conceptual idea of an AI-powered industry to actually living it and seeing it being executed. And I think the entire healthcare world is trying to keep up with this fast-moving AI concept and all these large language models. We read about it every day and try to learn more. And it's challenging for us. So I think about how amazing challenge it is for health services in general to keep up pace. We've seen AI-powered things like nurse hiring and some non-clinical AI-based things around patient engagement. But this is a really big deal because antibiotic resistance has been huge concern for a long time. And I, I was doing some research. The Lancet says that something like 1.27 million people died from antimicrobial resistance, say that five times fast, in 2019. And almost 3 million infections occur yearly in the U.S. alone. This study is really an exciting development when it comes to AI because it's really helping us figure out how to accelerate antibiotic drug discovery. And the researchers were at MIT and they used AI to screen a set of almost 39,000 antibiotics, natural products, any, any other molecule for their ability to stop MRSA from growing and whether or not the compound would be toxic to humans. It was really interesting. I got deep into this study yesterday and reading about it. And the model allowed researchers to comb through nearly 12 million compounds. And they found two compounds good for drug development. So just think about where we were just a few years ago and how AI is really making things so much speedier and, and trying to keep pace with all these infections that are occurring. And the researchers tested one of the compounds in mice with MRSA infections and found that the compound actually reduced MRSA load tenfold in both. So Mindy, this is really exciting and really interesting. Right. And it certainly was interesting to read. I think the second interesting aspect of this study was the portion about the explainable AI model that researchers used. What that means, right, is it was a model where it was clear on how the model actually came to its conclusions. So we've talked a little bit in the past about how AI has been used before for drug development efforts, but it's been a little bit of what we call black box. And while the findings have been really powerful and very accurate, how the models actually reached their output just hasn't been understood very well. So this study is definitely different in the way they were able to explain right that process. As we were reading through it, the thing that also struck me is how the researchers engineered their AI model to really explain why certain compounds would or would not have selective antibiotic activity in terms of their chemical structure. So now researchers have chemical explanations on how the infinitude of drug-like small molecules can be efficiently mined for new antibiotics using deep learning techniques. So definitely a cool study, and I would encourage everyone to just check it out. I think another cool study, but probably one that is a little bit more concerning versus exciting would be a study recently published in JAMA that found that three years after a private equity fund bought a hospital, 
adverse events like surgical infections, bed sores, et cetera, rose by 25% when they're compared to patients at hospitals that are not purchased by private equity investors. The study looked at 51 hospitals across nearly a decade and included researchers from multiple institutions. They saw that there was a 38% rise in central line infections and a 27% increase in patient falls. So if you're looking at the specific adverse events, there's quite the variety in terms of the types of drop-offs we're seeing or the types of things that are maybe going wrong in these hospitals. The study was funded by Arnold Ventures, which is a group that supports healthcare research, but has been critical in the past of private equity in industry. Private equity has really become a major player in the health industry and in purchasing not only hospitals, but also a growing number of nursing homes, physician practices, home health companies. In addition to the facts that you just cited, Jen, the report also called out a decrease in rate of patients who died during this hospital stay. And while researchers say this could be due to healthier patients being admitted to the hospital, it actually raised a lot of questions for me about what the other contributing factors could be for why we're seeing these types of statistics. I mean, clearly some of the things that you just mentioned to me highlight that there could be quality issues, but I also wonder how much cost cutting right, is going on because we know that's typically a trait or a practice of private equity firms and not trying to knock them at all. I think that's just their business practice. So I think the study just for me raised more questions than it really had answers in terms of of what's going on with these hospitals when it comes to private equity ownership. Yeah, Mindy, this was a big headline for us. When you think about the model and operating model of private equity and PE firms, you're right. It is just their model. And when they go into a practice or when they purchase something, they want to make change and they want to make things more efficient and streamlined on its face. I don't think there's anything wrong with that. But many of these health systems and hospitals are already extremely lean with staffing, with nursing shortage, with clinical shortage. So like the topic we talked about a few minutes ago around antibiotic resistance, CLABSIs and hospital-acquired infections or falls bed sores, all these things are a huge issue for hospitals and health systems. You know, as someone that worked in a health system, that's the stuff we talked about every week on lowering and figuring out interventions and things to fix those. And they're a real strain on costs. And they're also a real issue with patients and their families. And so there's the private equity stakeholder project is an interesting study. And it talks about the private equity backed hospitals. And there's something like 386 hospitals in the US owned by PE firms. I think that was higher than I thought it would be. These hospitals represent about 10% of all private hospitals. What I found interesting is about a third serve populations in rural areas. On this podcast, we've talked about the issues that rural hospitals have been facing for the last decade. And when you think about a third of PE firms owning them with maybe good intentions, trying to make things more efficient and effective when when these hospitals are already gasping for workers and newer technologies and investment, it doesn't come to a surprise that this data came out. Just a little bit more of a micro look at this. Half of New Mexico's hospitals are owned by PE. Texas has 85 alone. And the research doesn't give us the full picture of the impact of hospitals owned by private equity, but This rise in adverse events, and it's a significant one, is something we should keep our eye on. And to your point, Mindy, PE firms are not going to slow as they become a major player in this space. And 
I surmise they're going to continue to buy hospitals, nursing homes, independent practices, home health companies, as the financials of a lot of these systems are going to still have issues in 2024 and 2025. There's some policy involved here that we should talk about maybe at a later podcast. The Senate Budget Committee began pretty bipartisan investigation into the PE ownership of hospital just last month. Congress is pushing for more public reporting. So I think we're going to see more of these news stories as, as it comes about. And I think there is a bigger story here that we're going to hear about throughout this year. Yeah, I was going to say, Ryan, we're not the only ones with our eye on this story. You know, Congress has its eye on it as well, not only when it comes to potentially the rise in adverse events and some of this data that we're seeing in this study, but even things like aggressive patient billing, reduced access, consolidation to the point that you're making, Ryan, that maybe there is very low access in rural communities or in certain less privileged communities. So to your point, I think this is something that will continue to see unfold, particularly in an election year when it comes to health policy. Thank you, Mindy and Ryan, for joining me back in our first U.S. episode of 2024. We know the only constant in the healthcare industry is change, so I can't wait to hear what we're talking about next month. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of Trending Health. For links to resources discussed in the episode, to subscribe to the Trending Health podcast, and to explore if Dynamic can help your company manage ongoing healthcare industry change, visit trendinghealth.com. Tune into the next episode, where we look forward to providing you with more insights on the healthcare industry.